today what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, the Lord's table, communion. People call it a lot of different things. I personally think communion is probably the best, the best name for it. We're going to talk about that in the message today because we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can go and turn there right now. Mark 14. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 25. But before we get to that, I'm just going to pray for us. Pray that God speaks to our hearts and uh, teaches us what he wants to teach us this morning. Father, thank you uh, that we get to come into your presence. Thank you we get to be with you. Just like Adam was reading to us from Joshua 1.9, that you are with us. We can be strong and courageous, not because we're awesome, but because we have power, but because you are with us and we don't have to fear. Because even if the worst things happen, we know that you're ruling and you're overruling. And even in the midst of evil, you're overruling that ultimately to, to bring glory to yourself through our lives. And Father, there are a lot of things happening in a lot of different lives represented in those who are going to hear the words I'm about to speak. Will you give me the exact words you want for this service, for these people that might be different from last, last service? And God, will you just speak to my heart? Will you be present with us? Will you help us to come and commune with you, not just because we're taking communion today, but because you meet with us, because you're here in this place. And not just individually, but that we do it corporately together, that you'd bring us before your throne, that we'd encounter you, that you'd change us, you'd make us a better church as a result of our time together in these moments, and you'd make us more like your son Jesus Christ individually. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, maybe it's because it's this month, and I've been thinking through a lot of memories for us as a church as we're coming up on celebrating next week, our 10-year anniversary, but I'm thinking about a lot of the things that have happened in the life of our church. And this morning I got here, and the setup team had done a great job, and they do a great job every week. Let's give them a hand, people that are on the setup team. You know, every cable that gets run and all the signs that get put up and all that stuff is ultimately for the same mission of connecting people to Jesus for life change. And so they know when they're up here early and running stuff into the bridge kids and all those things that all that's, it's all planned out. They got a system. You should see the way they pack the trailer. But I was remembering the first time we did a practice setup before we ever had a Sunday morning service and we locked ourselves out of the trailer. (laughs) That's not a good start to the church, by the way. We had to get bolt cutters and cut the trailer open to be able to do that. And just thinking through that memory and thinking about different folks. And some of you, I was thinking about some of you individually and how, God, you're a different person now than you were 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't just mean there's more of you because <laughs> you gained weight. Or I don't mean, I, I was telling the, the, uh, Michelle, who is our office administrator, she was telling me, um, she'd probably hate that I share this with you, but I said in the first service, she didn't say anything afterwards, so here we go. Um, <laughs> she showed me, she was gathering some pictures. We're going to put some pictures up next week for ambiance here. And she's grabbed one. I guess she wasn't really filtering what she was saying. She's like, you had a lot of hair back then. <laughs> and then she's like, no, no, I mean, you did it different. Like, it was bigger. And I'm like, I know what you mean. <laughs> I affirm you in that statement. We've all changed. And some of you didn't even know Christ 10 years ago. And some of you, you weren't the person that you are today. Some of you leading small groups, and God's using you in significant ways in our church, and gotten you into the Word, and you've been transformed. And you're different people. And think about those memories. That's just 10 years of our church. Think about your whole life. What is your greatest memory? And there are different things that trigger those memories. And so for me this morning, being here and thinking about the setup and then thinking about our first setup, for sometimes it's sounds that you hear or songs that you'll hear. Sometimes it's, it smells. You ever smell something and it just triggers a memory? Anytime I smell fresh cut grass in the fall, I think of football practice. I haven't played football in a long time. But I think of that every time. Or maybe you smell gasoline. Or maybe it's the smell of chlorine at the pool. And remember your times at the pool. Or maybe, maybe it's cigarette smoke and it reminds you of a person. Maybe it's a barbecue and it reminds you of a, a, a memory that you have. It jars these emotions in you. And sometimes it's sights and sometimes it's a movie or sometimes it's just various things can jar these memories. What's your greatest memory? Maybe it was a Christmas morning as a kid. Maybe it was some significant event. I could never even guess a vacation that you've been on. 
uh, a wedding, maybe your own wedding, maybe it was somebody else's wedding. God did something in your heart in those moments. Maybe it was camp, it could have been at church, it could have been in, in your home, it could have been some significant birthday you had. Like, think about your greatest memory. And as I was thinking about this message and what we're going to talk about today, I was reflecting on our church and thinking through different memories. I was reminded of a story I shared with our church about eight or nine years ago. Now, I know there's only a handful of you that were here eight or nine years ago, but I've shared a lot of stories over the last 10 years and of my own personal life, the way God's impacted me or different things that have come from my, my life. But this one seems to come back up from the handful of people that are still around at our church from that time. I'm not positive exactly why, but it does. And, and the story is that my wife and I, we had been married for about a year. We had just bought our first house. My dad had passed away about a year before, and I still had his lawnmower. And this lawnmower hadn't been started for a while before he had passed away. And then we kept it in storage for a year before we bought our first house. We buy our first house. I waited a little bit too long to mow the lawn, you know, where it's like, now I have to do it today. Like, it has to happen today. It's about, you know, not quite knee high out there in the front yard. But, you know, the neighbors are thinking, who are the new people? Like, they need to mow their lawn. And so I go out there with this lawnmower, and it won't start. I'm not the most mechanically inclined if today's your first time here. (laughs) What I do... And home projects, once I run out of patience and, you know, I don't YouTube anything, I call my father-in-law. I call him and say, hey, this lawnmower won't start. Now, here's where the memory becomes controversial. Because I'm 101% confident I know what he told me on the other end of the line, and it was to pour gasoline on top of the lawnmower. Now, he's 110% confident that's not what he said. He said the gasoline needs to go in the carburetor. you got to take it apart and get to the carburetor. Maybe I, I, he's wrong, but maybe, for gracious sake, that's what happened. But I know what I did, and why would I do that if he didn't say it? Because I don't have any idea what I'm doing. So I start dumping gasoline on top of the lawnmower, and then go to start it up, and it mows enough to get one strip in the front yard. I do that. I mow the whole front yard that way. Just pouring gasoline on this thing, do a strip. Pour gasoline on this thing, do a strip. I get to the backyard, and it's in Texas, by the way. We're in Texas at this point. You know, it's 102,000 degrees outside. It's like 110 degrees outside. It feels terrible. Pouring gasoline on, starting this thing over and over again. I get to the backyard. I must have been tinkering with it because I pulled the spark plug wire off, and there's all this gasoline on this thing, right? I forgot to put the spark plug wire back on. So I pull it, and I start it, and like flames everywhere. There's fire on this lawnmower. finally goes out, and I think to myself, now it's warm. (laughs) I'm ready to go now. But I didn't think to myself, maybe the cord was singed by the flames. And so I go to start the lawnmower again, and I, I mean, adrenaline's pumping. We just had a fire, like adrenaline's pumping. I grab the lawnmower, wham, and I hit myself in the head, and I fall back. I fall into the bushes, fall down. I realize what's happened. I've still got the cord in my hand. It's like dangling out of my hand here. And I decide, and we didn't have, my wife and I had just had a talk in the backyard a couple days before that about how we don't have any money in the bank. We did all of our money to deposit on this house, down payment on this house, and we were starting, I was starting seminary, and so all the money was going towards that. And so I, but I determined in my heart, we're buying a new lawnmower. Like, I'm not messing with this thing ever again. I walk into the house. I got the cord in my hand. I said, Shan, I'm buying a new lawnmower. She goes, we don't have any money for that. That's like $300. And I thought, she has never bought a lawnmower in her life. She does not know how much they cost. They are not $300. I went to Home Depot because at our closing, they gave us a $100 gift certificate for Home Depot. First lawnmower I walk up to, guess how much it was? $299.99 on the thing right there. Like, I didn't buy that one. I bought a $100 one. It lasted us about a decade. Now, why that memory sticks out to you guys is probably because I look like an idiot in the story. I don't know for sure that's why. But for me, when I think about it, I'm reminded, I remember the loss of my dad when I had this possession. It was one of the you know, possessions I had left after my dad had passed away. I'm reminded of the new stage of life that Shannon and I were at, of being newly married and a new house and all the t- possibilities and all the things that were open to us at that moment. And 
I'm reminded what a hotly debated memory that is ever since I told it to you guys as a church. My father and I, father-in-law and I debate this all the time. We'll probably talk about it today after church. He's wrong, but we'll be gracious in the situation. And today what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about one of the most significant memorials that we have as Christians. It's also one of the most debated memorials. And if you go through the scriptures, what you see is that memorials are really significant all throughout the Bible. So whether it's crossing the Red Sea or crossing the Jordan, what do they do afterwards? They set up a pile of stones so they could remember what happened and tell the next generation about what happened. You see people that want to memorize scripture, they put, they actually strap it on their body as a memorial. There's altars that are built, whether it's Abraham or whether it's Gideon, there's altars that are built when God does significant things so we can remember what he did. God even gives us things to remember. A rainbow in the sky, which was not for a pride parade, by the way, which I think is going to be judgment for using that. Was to remember, God's never going to destroy the earth with the flood again. It's a covenant with Noah. To remember it. And what we see in the scriptures is when we fail to remember God's power, when we fail to remember his work, we drift towards disobedience. Read the book of Judges. We do what's right in our own eyes, and it's dangerous. And today what we're talking about is probably one of the most significant memorials we have in all of the New Testament. It's called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion. We're going to see in the passage we look at in Mark chapter 14 that Jesus doesn't give it a title, but all the titles we use, they make sense. And what Jesus is doing, he's given us more than just something to remember, though. And so today, we're talking about more than just a memory. Communion. And what does it mean? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Join me there in verse 12 is where we're going to start reading. Mark chapter 14. And this, this is a, a serious topic. Let me tell you why it's so serious. People have died over this. In fact, Christians throughout the ages have been burned at the stake. I was just reading last night about how Queen Mary I had killed so many Christians, burned them at the stake because of their beliefs about this topic. But it's not just historically significant. You go back into the Bible. And we're not going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but that's another passage that teaches about communion today. But it says in that passage that those who take communion in an unworthy manner, we will talk about what that is at the end. That's why some people have gotten sick. And some of you in Corinth have even died. So some people are getting heart disease. Some people are dying as a result of taking communion in an unworthy manner. So I realize, as I'm teaching this to you today, this is significant. This matters. I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to lead you down the wrong path. But my hope for you is this, that when we're done with this message today and we take communion together as a church, those of you who partake in this, that it's one of the most meaningful times you've ever had taking communion because you understand the elements more than you ever had before and you think about what's supposed to be happening in these moments. And then hopefully communion will be changed from now on for many of you. But join me in Mark chapter 14 as we see Jesus have this, the last meal that he has with his disciples. And for those of you who haven't been with us, what's been going on is this is the last week in the life of Jesus and his earthly ministry as he heads towards the cross. He gets crucified on Friday. It's Thursday in this passage. What's happened on Tuesday and Wednesday is that he's gone into the temple. It hasn't gone well. One of his buddies, one of the disciples say to him, but it's a great building, right? And then Jesus says, that whole building's going to be wiped out. And then they say, well, tell us about the end of the world. Tell us when that happens. What is the date? What are the signs? And Jesus knows that we want dates, and he knows that we want signs, but he, he really emphasizes us, are you ready? Wake up. Be alert. I could come back at any moment. Are you ready? And we saw last week, this woman comes, and she's the only one that's alert. She's the only one that's awake. She realizes what's happening, and she pours a $25,000 bottle of perfume on Jesus' head. She anoints him, and it says in the passage, he's anointed for his burial. Now in this passage, we're hours away from him being crucified. He's going to have a meal He's going to set up as a significant memorial for the church as a whole from this point forward until he comes back. I'll read, read about it with me in verses 12 through 25. 
And really verses 12 through 21 are the setting. But even in the setting, God has a lesson for us to learn there as we see his sovereignty. And then verses 22 through 25, we see the meal. Look at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher, so this, the master of the house, the teacher, like which teacher? He knows who it is. Jesus, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Verse 15. And he will show you a large upper room. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 17. And he went and, and, or, and when it was evening, he came in with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you, talking to the twelve, will betray me. One who's eating with me. Now we know this. We know it's Judas. We've already read it. Last week, Judas made his deal with the religious leaders. The disciples, this is shocking. Wait, you're going to be betrayed. We understood that. But by one of us? Let's look what happens. They began to be sorrowful, verse 19. And to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And so he wasn't pointing out one person then. They're, they're dipping into the dishes at the table. And so it's, one of these, it's a huge betrayal. To betray someone you eat with, you have fellowship with, you've demonstrated trust with and relationship with. And then verse 21. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him had that man had never been born. In other words, one of the closest disciples I have, one of my twelve, they're going to spend eternity in hell. And verse 22 is the meal. And as they were eating, he took bread And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, he's talking about the wine there, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So here he points us to the future. Oftentimes when we think of communion, we only go backwards. We just think back to the cross or we think back to our salvation. But he's pointing us to the ultimate consummation. He's pointing us to the feast that we're going to share with him. And that's when he will drink of the vine again with us in communion with us. But here what we have in this passage is the Passover. Many of us, that just kind of flies over our head because we're not Jewish. We don't think about the customs of those times and what that meant. Some of you might not even realize that the last meal was a Passover meal. As Christians, you might not even think about the the context when we come for communion, that it's a Passover time that's being celebrated. But here in the passage, you go back to in verse 12, twice it says Passover. Verse 14, Passover. Verse 16, Passover. This is a celebration that's been taking place up until this point for about 1,500 years. So think about it. You do something 1,500 times. You know how it goes. Some of you, you drive home from work the same way every day, probably about 300 times, maybe more than 300 times a year. I bet you don't use your GPS, do you? Have you ever, in a moment of honesty, have you ever been driving in that same path and it wasn't actually that you were going to work and you start to turn this, do the same thing anyway? It's like, what am I doing? Some of your heads are shaking. Good, I'm not the only one. Because you know how it goes after that many times. They've been celebrating the Passover for 1,500 years and Jesus changes it in this passage. This is not, he throws a curveball. This is not how the script goes when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. So this is like the record scratch. 
What did he just do? He just redefined the Passover for us. And what Jesus does, what communion, the, one of the meanings of communion is this. It's a new and greater Passover. The communion is a new and greater Passover. We've seen in the passage that it is the Passover. But did you notice the disciples, when they, when they ask about it, they don't even ask if they're going to celebrate. They're outside the walls of Jerusalem. You have to be inside the walls of Jerusalem to have the Passover meal. They all know that if Jesus goes inside the walls, he's going to get killed. What do they say back in John chapter 11? Well before this time, they say, you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. You can't go back to Jerusalem. But when it's time to eat the Passover, later, when there's more intensity, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. They're plotting his death. Judas has already gone to betray him. The hour, it's hours away. They don't say, so are we going to celebrate Passover? Go back to verse 12. On the first day of unleavened blood, the disciples said to him, where will you have us go? Like, we're, of course we're going to, it'd be like for many of us Christmas. <laughs> no matter what's going on. You don't have any money. Doesn't matter. We're still celebrating Christmas. You're out, you're some deserted place. We're still, it's Christ, if tomorrow's Christmas, you're not looking at your family and going, so do you think we should this year? Like, we're going to celebrate Christmas at the birth of our Savior. And so they say, they don't say if, if, hey, Jesus, I mean, if you'd like to this year, do you think we should do that? It's like, where do we go? And then what we see next in this passage shows us that in the midst of the greatest evil that's ever happened on this earth, the murder of Jesus Christ, he's sovereignly in control, even of his own betrayal. So we see his sovereignty here. So let me just give you this before we even walk through and point out all of his sovereignty in the setting of this passage, because we see his sovereignty and we see his grace in the situation, that the next time you hold the bread in your hands for communion, no matter what's going on in your life, you know that Jesus Christ is sovereign, that he's ruling and he's overruling and the, even the, the most evil things that are happening in our world or in your life, that you have a sovereign savior and he's gracious. Because you go to the passage and you see what happens. Jesus tells them, he said, go into the city and he sends two disciples. And Mark doesn't tell us who the two are, but Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22, you can read the parallel account of this. He tells us it was Peter and John. And what he says next sounds a lot like what happened in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, when it was the triumphal entry. And it's, you can see he's got it all laid out. I know exactly how the details are going to go. I'm in control of everything that's happening. You're going to go into town, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Many of us will read our Bibles and we'll just read right past that. It's like, okay, but was there like a thousand guys carrying a jars of water? See, it was odd for a man to be carrying a jar of water. Only women carried jars of water. And so one Bible commentator I read said, it'd be like going into a town and seeing a man carrying a purse. And I thought, when was this commentary written? Is he not? There's metrosexuals. There's mercers out there everywhere. His point was, this would stand out. Hey, you guys are going to go into this town. You're going to see something strange. A man carrying a jar of water. Doesn't say go talk to him. Follow him. Follow him to whatever house he goes to. And the house he goes to, you tell him, you don't even have to tell him my name. Just tell him the teacher. The teacher, he wants, he wants to know if the room's ready. And there's this upper room and it's ready. Why doesn't he just tell an address? Because Jesus knows what Judas has already done. He knows that Judas has already decided to betray him. He's already made the deal. He knows how much money he's getting to tell the t but it's not time. And Jesus is in control of when he gets betrayed. And so he doesn't tell an address so Judas can't slide off and go and tell on him, hey, this is the house that we're going to be at having this meal. No, he's going to send these guys. He's got it all planned out, but it's not time yet. And so they get to this place and it's evening now. The disciples have already made preparations, and just some of the preparations that would happen is they'd blast these trumpets at the temple to let you know it was time to bring the sacrifices, to bring the lamb to be slaughtered for the Passover lamb. 
And so you'd go in and you'd take your lamb in there and they'd cut the tail off and they'd cut the fat out of it. They'd burn that on the altar and then they'd take the skinned animal and they'd give it back to you and you'd take it back. And the Old Testament gives specific instructions. You don't just get to cook it however you want. Hey, we're having lamb kebabs this year. We're going to do fried lamb because we're from southern Jerusalem. No, you don't get to do all that. (laughs) Everybody's having barbecue. It's all roasted. So if you've been to pig picking, it's that kind of deal. What they do is they dig out a hole in the ground. They create a barbecue. They lay the lamb over top of it. Think about the smell. Think about the sounds. There's maybe 250,000 lambs have been slaughtered and are now being barbecued. There's a smell in the air. Roasted lamb. The neighbors burned theirs. You know, you just got all, you got all these smells that are happening. And you've got the trumpets that have been blasted. They're jarring memories in the disciples' minds of how the Passover has gone in the past. And God's sovereignly ruling over this one. And it's going to be different. There's an event that takes place between verses 17 and 18 in Mark that Mark does not record for us. It's in John. And you can read about it in John chapter 13. In fact, John gives us a lot of the teaching that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't share with us in chapters 13 through 16. But in John chapter 13, if you read verses 1 through 13 on your own, what you find out is that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And so here he is, and some people debate about whether or not he's, they're arguing about who's the greatest at this moment, again, having the same argument. We know in Luke that they have, end up having it after the meal still again. And that Jesus gets up, who's clearly the greatest. He's wearing a rabbi's robe. He takes his robe off. He puts on a towel, the garment of a servant, and he washes each one of their feet, even Judas. What we're seeing is the grace of Jesus towards Judas. I read a verse earlier, and I think some of you maybe made a comment. It's a heavy verse that... It would have been better had he never been born. Talking about him going to hell. Warren Wearsby says, everyone who's not born again, there will come a point in their life where they'll realize it would have been better had they never been born. Because they're going to spend eternity separated from God. In hell, in constant torment. A real place where real people go. But Jesus keeps giving Judas opportunities to repent. He keeps giving him these moments. And so he washes his feet. Judas, when he got to Judas' feet, he could have said, no, 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 not me but he doesn't. When they're sitting at the meal, most scholars believe that that John, we know clearly from the Bible, is sitting next to Jesus on the right, and so his head is leaning into Jesus' chest. And that on the left, they believe, is Judas, who would be seated in the special guest honor, spot of honor. He could have said, "I I can't do that. You don't know what I've done. He doesn't do it. When Jesus is sitting there with him, the way they'd be reclining with their feet at the table is that it would put Jesus' head basically at Judas, inches away from his heart, right at his chest. Judas could have leaned in and and without even everybody else even knowing, repented in that moment, but he doesn't. But he's given repeated opportunities. And so let me tell you this too. When you hold the bread, that's a call to repentance. You're talking about taking it in an unworthy manner. What's been happening in Corinth? And you hear us every time somebody stands up to do communion, to lead communion at our church, we say, hey, if you're not a believer in Jesus, don't take this. We're not going to judge you, but let me tell you the next part. God will. You're calling judgment on yourself in that moment. And we actually fear God. Whom shall we fear, we say? God. Because he's not just the lamb, he's also the lion. And his wrath will come and to spend eternity separated from him. It would be better if you've never been born. Don't do that. You're calling judgment on yourself. So it's a call to repentance too. See, Jesus, they, he tells them, they, they ask about who's, he tells them somebody's going to betray them. They realize it's one of the 12. They didn't know that before. And they ask this question we see, I'm reading from the ESV today. Is it I? <laughs> Which is a weird way to talk, I think. I think it's the New Revised Standard, maybe it's the New King James that translates it. I think it's a better translation. The way the Greek actually writes it, it implies a negative answer. It's not me, is it? Or, it's not me, right, Jesus? Like, it's, surely it's not me. 
Because you want him to answer a certain way. You ask a leading question. You know you want somebody, you're asking it. You're like making somebody answer the way you want them to answer. He's like, it's not me, right? Maybe they were just arguing about who's the greatest and now they're realizing they might be the one that betrays Jesus, but they surely don't want to be the one. And 11 of them are sincerely naive, but one of them knows what he's doing. And he says it. It's not me, right? What went through the mind of Jesus in that moment? As they both knew. And Judas doesn't repent. But Jesus doesn't give any of them assurance that they won't betray him. Do you know why? Because all of them betray him. Judas, in this unique way, with no faith in him, desires money over God. But even the, belie- even the followers, the genuine followers, betray him. Peter does it his own way. Now, later, Peter's going to be so proud, he's going to say, even if the rest of these guys do it, I won't. I'll go with you to the death. Then he denies them three times. We know, you know how the story goes. Some of you do. But when Jesus is struck, they all scatter. They all betray Jesus. Every sin is a betrayal of Jesus. Every sin is an act of a lack of faith. You should never come to communion without desire. You know that you're going to sin when you leave this place. You have a willing sin. You're going to betray Jesus and come. No, you're calling judgment on yourself. Beware. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. That's why the warning's given. It's an act of grace to warn you. Jesus being so gracious here with Judas, so gracious with these disciples and sovereignly in control. And so when you hold that bread, it's a call to repentance. If you've been faking, some of you have maybe heard over the last couple of weeks what Judas is like. So maybe even be a leader in our church but you don't have a real relationship with Jesus, repent. It's a call to repentance that will take these elements today. Some of you, you, you got willing sin. You know you're going to betray him. Repent. Don't take the element. Repent. Now you can take after you repent, but repentance is this. You're headed in the way. You stop and you turn back and hit, you go back in God's direction. I have no intention to go back that direction away again. Jesus gives that warning. And then, and then they have the meal. It's this Passover meal. In verse 22 it says, and they were eating. He took the bread, and what's happened here at this moment when they go to the meal, it's been the same way for them through their whole lives. They know how the script goes. The Passover meal surrounds four cups of wine. And the first one they would have, and they'd pray, and then there'd be some vegetable appetizers, and then they'd mix the second cup because it's pretty diluted wine. They'd put some water in this wine, and they'd have the second cup. And before the, when the second cup was done, then the youngest kid in the family, the, the youngest son, was supposed to ask a question to the patriarch, whoever's leading this. And so the question should be asked to Jesus at this, at this meal. And the question is, why is tonight different than all the other nights? And then what the host does is he tells the story of the Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament, and the Passover that took place. But the point isn't just so that we remember an old story from 1,500 years before. The point is to put yourself in the story. And so try and imagine being there. Back in the second book of the Old Testament and your people, your whole family, and ever since, everybody that you've ever known, every generation for over 400 years has been in bondage to Egypt. They've experienced slavery, physical abuse, emotional abuse, every kind of abuse you can imagine your family's undergone. And you've cried out to God, and it doesn't seem like God's been listening until now. And now what's happened is there's been all these plagues. And what God's doing is he's showing he's stronger than the gods of Egypt. He's stronger than the fake gods that they have, that they worship, that they bow down to. And so he sent a plague of boils. Talk about a terrible plague. A plague of darkness. A plague of locusts. A plague of frogs. But the worst plague, the worst plague is still going to come. The worst plague is the plague of the firstborn. That every firstborn child and livestock will be killed when the death angel comes. Unless, unless there's a substitute. Unless you take a lamb 
and kill the lamb and then wipe the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your home, then the angel, the death angel, will pass over your home by grace, by God's mercy, because there was a substitute. And, and as they told the story, then whoever was telling the story was to end and then say this, say this line, it is because of that which the Lord did, and here's the key, for me. Now wait, it was 1,500 years ago. He did for me that I came forth from Egypt. Not what I did for my ancestors, it's what you did for me. And so Jesus tells the deliverance story. He tells the Passover story. And then probably at the third cup of wine, he takes this bread, which have its own symbols, an unleavened bread of the hastiness. When the Israelites left, they didn't have time. They, they were running out of this place. And, and the, the old life, the leaven throughout the scriptures we see, symbolizes sin, bread, which people have misunderstood all through Jesus' life. He's born in the city of Bethlehem. That is the, the city of bread, by the way. He, he multiplies bread for the feeding of the 5,000. You guys didn't get the miracle. They're arguing about it the next miracle. He says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I am your provision. I will satisfy you. And people don't get it. They get upset and they leave. And here Jesus takes the bread and he redefines it. He says, this bread is my body. And he takes this cup, this wine that would be a symbol of joy. And he says, now it's a reminder of my blood. It's a symbol of my blood. What is he talking about? He's talking about his sacrifice that he's going to make. But it's a new and greater sacrifice. Because unlike the lamb, it's permanent. There doesn't need to be another sacrifice. Unlike the lamb... It's a knowledgeable, it's a knowing, it's a willing sacrifice. It's a new, it's a greater substitute than the lamb was a substitute. So there's, there's at least three reasons why this is a, a greater Passover. First reason, because there doesn't have to be another one. Did you know, you know, you read the Old Testament and you see these bulls and these goats being sacrificed. You know what the New Testament says? The New Testament says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All of those ultimately pointed forward to, so even the Passover lamb pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Who's the, that's why you don't need any more sacrifices. And so yet yeah, the temple's destroyed. God stops it. He's stopping all of these things. You don't need bulls and goats. You don't need that because the ultimate sacrifice was made when Jesus' body was broken for you, when his blood was shed for you, when he died on the cross for your sins. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Because all of the sacrifices ultimately pointed to him. But not only that, but he was a knowledgeable sacrifice. You think about the lambs being led to slaughter. And I don't know how all lamb, I've never sacrificed a lamb myself. I've talked to a guy that has sacrificed lambs. He said, lambs, they just submit. They go willingly. I'd imagine, best case scenario, that's how it goes. That you walk them down and they go willingly to the, to the slaughter and they get some, maybe, but they don't know what they're doing. Let me tell you something. That first Passover, there were no lambs that thought, man, I really love the oldest kid in this family. I, man, I'm getting my life. That ain't happening, okay? They're ignorant. They don't realize what's happening. Do you know what Jesus says? He says, no one took his life. Not only has he prescribed, he said the exact details of how this is going to happen, and everything he says is happening exactly the way that he said it was going to happen, which should give us great assurance for the promises he said that haven't happened yet. But, he says in John chapter 10, well before all this stuff happens, in John chapter 10 and verse 18, he says this, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He willingly 
knowledgeably, knowing what he's doing, knowing why he's here, is laying down his life, not for his sins, for yours, for mine. I read a story this week about a woman who died in an earthquake in Iran in 2003. There was the worst earthquake they had had in a decade. And the whole, they were all in mourning. Everybody was in mourning. But there was this one story that stuck out. And it was of this woman who in the earthquake, she was in this building, and the building collapsed on her. And she covered up her six-month-old daughter that they found 37 hours later and was still alive. Now, anybody here who is a mother, who knows a mother, who has a mother, knows that any loving mother, that wasn't an accident. She didn't just get knocked down on top of the baby. She willingly was trying to save the life of that child. You know what it says? 700 years before Jesus came to us, before he leaves heaven, comes to us, puts on flesh, lives a life, does the ministry in his body, dies on the cross, his body, is risen from the dead, the glorified body. You know what it says in Isaiah chapter 53? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. That's love. You ever hold the bread in your hand again and think to yourself, I don't know if I'm loved. Think about that love. He willingly was crushed for your sins and for mine. Which takes us to the third reason why it's a new and greater Passover, because it's a greater substitute. He is the substitute. Think about how about that lamb at the Passover time. The lamb was a substitute. You took the blood of the lamb, you sacrificed it. I don't think there were many families thinking to themselves, I don't know, it's a really nice lamb. You get talking about your firstborn child. You sacrificed the lamb. You put the blood on the doorpost. They all did it. Many of us, when we think of substitutes, we think of things that are lesser. So you think of the lamb in comparison to the child. Of course, you sacrificed the lamb. You think when you were a kid, you had a substitute teacher. You know the substitute teacher wasn't as sharp as your teacher? Maybe it was just me because I was kind of a troubled kid and class clown. And I'd be like, substitute, jackpot. (laughs) He doesn't even know I'm the bad kid. (laughs) Unless the, the teacher probably wrote notes. I probably would watch out for this desk. You know, he's got the thing. But you knew it was going to be an easier day because it was a substitute. If you're a football fan, I like football. I know some of you are basketball fans. I know it's basketball season, but I'm more familiar with football, so I'll go with this. If you're a football fan and you know that your, team, your team's been losing games, who's the most popular person on the whole team? It's a second-string quarterback until he plays. And you realize why he's the second-string quarterback. And he throws an interception on the first drive. You see, the substitutes we usually think of are lesser This substitute, Jesus Christ, is greater. Greater than that lamb, not just because he's the last one, not just because he's a willing one, because of what he does. He willingly, lovingly comes, lays his life down, and pays for the sins, it says in our passage, for many, for the the world, for you and for me. He's our substitute in our place on behalf of, the language in the text, for you, for me. There's one friend Chris Travis, who wrote the small group study this week, he's a member of our church right here in the front row. You know, we're talking about the, this, this message this week, and he said this, this concept that led to his conversion because it's, it's not just like sins in general that Jesus was crushed for. It was for Chris's sin. It was for your sin. Any of you here a liar? Don't answer. <laughs> I don't want to make you more guilty. We're all liars. All adulterers. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, have you ever had a lustful thought? Don't answer, just in case you might lie. We're all greedy, idolatrous, covetous, jealous, gossips, slanderers, and it was a sin that put nails into the cross of our Savior. 
He wasn't dying for his sin. He was dying for our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become his righteousness. He's dying in our place as our substitute in your place on the cross. And that is love. Tim Keller in his book, The King and the Cross, says he's got this theme that goes through it. He walks through the book of Mark. He doesn't hit every passage, but if you go and read it, you can see some of the passages we're covering. And he multiple times says this concept that true Life-changing love is always substitutionary sacrifice. And he talks about it in our, you know, in our horizontal relationships with one another. And he says, think about it. If you have needy friends, emotionally needy friends, he said, where you live, there's probably like four or five people that aren't needy. Go be friends with them because they're easy. But the rest of us all have a bunch of needs. And he says, in order to love those people, it's going to cost you something. It's going to suck emotion out of you if they're emotionally empty. Because you're going to pour into them or you just leave them hanging out there, which isn't loving. He said, any of you have kids? And he said, you, by the time you have kids, you probably have some level of independence in your life. Once you start having kids, you've made about a 20-year commitment that if you're going to nurture them, you're going to sacrifice some independence so that they can grow from their time of dependence. Every life-changing love is substitutionary. You take on some of their problems, but none of them are like Jesus. Jesus had no sin. But he dies for your sin in your place on the cross. That is the substitute. That is why it is a new and greater Passover. But it's not just a new and greater Passover. It's a new and greater covenant. The communion that we celebrate, the meaning of it is not just a new and greater Passover. It's a new and greater covenant. Let me read to you verses 23 through 25 again. It's just after he talks about the bread, which we've talked about the bread. And let's talk a little bit more about the cup. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, here's Jesus' words now, this is my blood of the covenant. Luke tells us new covenant. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He says, which is poured out for many. And then he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink of it again. I'm going to drink this cup again until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And many people believe that he's referring to, I said the Passover meal revolves around four cups, that he doesn't drink the fourth cup. He's not going to drink until we're with him again, which points us forward to the future. But here, when he gives this third cup, he says, what is it? It's blood. Now, some of you have taken communion so many times, that doesn't even strike you as like an odd statement. This is, cup is my blood. Imagine being at church for the first time, and the guy in the front stands and says, you're about to drink blood. You're like, this is like a vampire movie? Like, this is weird. This would be incredibly shocking to these listeners. Jewish men... Blood is notoriously forbidden. In, in the Old Testament law, you're told, you're, if you kill an animal to eat it, you better drain all the blood from it. That is the life of the animal. You don't eat life. It's unclean. You don't do that. So to, to drink blood is a shocking statement. But not only that, but he says the cup is this cup. Everything that you see in Mark about the cup points us to suffering. James and John are arguing earlier in the book about who's the greatest and what does Jesus say to them? Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? He's talking about his upcoming suffering. We're going to read in a couple weeks from now, we're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and he's going to be praying and he's saying, if there's any other way, Father, take this cup from me, this suffering from me. What's being said here is shocking. Blood, suffering. But did you notice he uses this word covenant? We can go right past it. It's a word for promise. It's covenant. It's a new covenant. The blood is bringing a new covenant. His suffering is bringing a new covenant. What's the new covenant? Well, first, let me tell you what the old covenant he's referring to. is. It's the Mosaic covenant, which says you've got to drain all the blood out of the animals. It's the obedience that your relationship with God is based on your obedience to God. He's got a new and greater covenant. 
Your relationship with God is not based on your obedience with God. It's based on Jesus Christ's sacrifice and suffering, his obedience to God. And it happens by faith. And there's a lot that can be said about the new covenant. The summary of it is this. You receive real forgiveness and real fellowship with God in spite of your sin. So when we talk about taking communion in a worthy manner, it's not because you obeyed all the law this week because you were a good boy, a good girl, because you do the right thing, because you read your Bible, because you are a small group leader, because you served in Bridge Kids, because you were on the setup team. It's because you're looking towards what happened on the cross, and it's all by grace, and you've repented of your sin. You've cast it upon the cross of Christ. The covenant is that you receive real forgiveness and real fellowship with him because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, his suffering, his bloodshed for you. The bulls and goats never paid for sin. It all pointed us towards this. And what the law teaches us is that we sin. Paul even says, well, for the law, I wouldn't have known that coveting was a sin. And he wouldn't realize how guilty he is. And you think about a guy who's done all these things. Hey, as for Pharisaic righteousness, I was faultless. I had it down. I was, for what they say to do, I did. I actually did it. But I was a sinner before God. Do you realize your sin? Do you realize if you've sinned once, that's enough to send you to hell for eternity? The Bible says if you break the law in one way, you're breaking the whole thing. So let me ask again, have you ever lied? We all have. That means we're liars. Well, I didn't lie. How many times do you have to lie before you're a liar? One. We're all liars. We're all sinful. We've all broken the law. But do you realize your forgiveness? Do you realize how real your forgiveness is? Because many of us, what I think we do with forgiveness is we make it this simple thing, like God just kind of swept it under the rug, like we just forget it, because that's what we do with each other. When we go to forgive one another, we say, oh, I'm going to forgive you, and I'm just not going to think about it anymore. I'm just going to try and forget that it happened and just kind of put it off. That is not forgiveness, by the way. The Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. <laughs> so you got to punch him in the nose, right? Make them pay. Well, that's really what we do. We might not punch them in the nose, but really, if we're going to forgive someone, we either need to make them pay or we go to the cross of Christ where it's already been paid for. And what many of us don't do is we don't actually go to the cross of Christ with things we need to forgive of other people. And so we just sweep it under the rug. We just forget it. We minimize it. We say it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. It was enough for Jesus to die for. And so are you going to take it to the cross or are you going to make them pay yourselves? Or are we going to come up with this cultural thing we come up with where it's just like we try and forget about it. We just want to sweep it under the rug. So that is not forgiveness. That is not what you've experienced from Jesus Christ. And in order for you to understand what you've received from Jesus Christ, you've got to understand the darkness of your own sinfulness. And what Jesus did when he substituted for you is he willingly went into that darkness. He was forsaken by his Father, even though he committed no sins. Do you realize the weight of that? I was reading another story this week of a guy. His name was Ridgway. His last name was Ridgway. Gary Leon Ridgway. He was a, a serial killer. And in 2003, he was convicted of 48 crimes. He killed 48 different women. In 2011, there was another woman that came up. The count was up to 49 different women. And on the day of his sentencing, they let all the families come and say something to him. And so people came, and they were venomous, talking about their person that they lost, the pain that he had caused, the hate that they had towards him. But then there was this one guy. He sat there through all of that, all the accusations, all that stuff, stone-faced, not even moving. And then one guy comes forward, his name is Robert Rule. His daughter was Linda Jane Rule. She's a teenager. One of the women that he killed. Ridgway said that he probably killed about 60 people. 49 of them he was guilty of. 49 families there. And Mr. Rule said, a lot of people here hate you. And I'm not one of them. You've made it really hard for me to live out what I believe. But God said to forgive you. 
And then he said, Mr. Ridgway, I forgive you, sir. A title of respect. And Ridgway started to weep. Tears started to come down his face at that time. Because forgiveness, when you realize the weight of your sin, it will melt you. But do you realize that what Jesus Christ did for you was more than what that father did for Mr. Ridgway? Because it'd be like, and some of you say, well, I didn't kill 60 people, I didn't kill 50 people. Hey, your sin is enough to send you to hell. It'd have been better had you never been born. It's a pretty heavy deal. And it's as if Jesus came into the courtroom and his father was the judge, and he doesn't just say, hey, I forgive you, and we're never going to have to talk about this again. And let's just forget that it happened. And he says, I'm going to take your sentence for you. But not only that, here's the keys to my house. Because I've prepared a room for you. And I want you to go stay there. But not only do you get to stay in my house, I want you to be part of my family. And so my father and I, we've decided we're going to adopt you into the family and we're going to give you our name. And so we want you to live with our name and all the rights and all the privileges that come with you having our name that you get to be called one of ours. And you get access to all of my inheritance. It's all yours. You become part of the family. And when I'm done serving your sentence, then I'm going to come and I'm going to be with you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. And I'm going to walk with you through this life. And I'm going to begin a work in you. And I'm going to transform you so that you can be more like me. And if you turn your back on me and you run from me, I'm going to be right there every time you turn around, willing to take you back. You just got to turn back. That's real forgiveness. And that's what you've received at the cross if you've received that at the cross. Have you? Because that's what the cup represents. So when you hold the cup, that's what you think of. That's the covenant. Real forgiveness and right fellowship with Christ. So what does this all mean? Why have people died over this? Why are people being burned at the stake for this? Why are people getting sick and dying in the book of Corinthians because of this? Well, let me tell you what it means. First of all, it means this. Whenever you come to the table, whenever you come, we're proclaiming the death of Christ. So all the stuff that we talked about today, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, whenever you have this, whenever you do this, these elements, you're proclaiming my death until I return. And so it means his death, his substitutionary death, his willing death, his loving death, that he's the greater sacrifice, that he's the new Passover, that it's the new covenant, that you really receive forgiveness. All of that is happening in these moments until he returns. And it points us ultimately to our desire for him to come back, which takes us to the second thing. The second thing that it means is this. It also means communion with him. Now, why many people have been burned at the stake is over an argument that you hear theologians call transubstantiation and consubstantiation, the real presence, and whether it's just a memorial and all those arguments that happen. And, and Mary was burning people at the stake because they wouldn't say that it was transubstantiation, meaning what the Catholics believe is that when the priest says magic words over the elements, they actually become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. In this passage in Mark chapter 14, Jesus was still physically standing there. Those elements, when he says, this is my body, were not his body. They were symbolic of his body. The blood did not come out of his veins and go into the cups. That was wine in the cups. We're going to use juice today, grape juice. But we have a risen Savior, don't we? And so when we come to the table, we don't just remember something that happened 2,000 years ago. We don't just remember our own salvation experience that maybe happened 5 or 10 or 15 years ago, whenever you got saved. You don't just remember that moment. He's really alive. He's really with us, and he really wants to commune with you. So the second thing that happens is real communion. We don't believe this actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. No Protestant, no Reformed person, person who believes that salvation comes only by faith, through grace, at what happened on the cross, not based on your works, thinks that Jesus needs to be sacrificed again. His sacrifice was once and for all. 
And so that's why we reject that Catholic false teaching. But we do believe that he wants to commune with us in that moment. It's not just a memory. It's more than a memory. There's in, that's why I think communion is the best title, because it's a time of intimacy with Jesus Christ, who's a living and risen Savior. And it's also a time of communion with one another. I think oftentimes in our individualistic society, we miss that point. And you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17 to talk about communion with Jesus and communion with one another and what's supposed to happen here. And so it should be symbolic of our unity with one another. And so that's one of the reasons why I'd encourage you, if you ever have an unreconciled difference with somebody that's a believer in this church and we're about to take communion, stop, don't, don't take communion. Go to that person, reconcile that relationship. Go, go with them because you don't pretend like you have unity when you don't have unity. And if you need to leave the room and go somewhere else, go to another church, whatever you got to do, do that. We'll have, we have a communion about once a month. And so you can have it again. You're not going to miss it forever. But don't, don't take this lightly. This is a real thing that's happening here. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There's a reason why there's a warning. There's a reason why people are getting sick and dying. Take this serious. So I love, and you know, different churches show the unity aspect of communion in different ways. Some churches, they all take from the same loaf of bread. Some, some all drink because they go to this pastor and they're like, well, they all drink from the same cup, so we should all drink from the same cup. Some churches do that. I know that we have a lot of germaphobes in our church. <laughs> I've received emails after communion before, believe it or not. You know what we do? One of the things that we do is we want you to hold the elements until we all take them together. And that's symbolic of our unity with one another. And one of the other things I love that we've been doing, uh, especially since we've been here at the school, is that we all come forward to get communion. And so I love seeing different people come up. People at different stages of life, different stories, different things going on, but we've got this common bond in the cross of Jesus Christ, that we're all sinners, we're all coming to his grace, we all want fellowship with him. When we take the elements, we're saying we want fellowship with him. And so it reminds us of our unity together, that, that we're brothers and sisters, unlike we are with our physical brothers and sisters if they're not believers. We've got this common communion that we have with one another.